Welcome back to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, where we look at the works of J.R.R. Tolkien through the lens of adaptation. Today's episode is a continuation of our great discussion with Chad Bornholt and Chad High from the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. We're getting into the Rivendell scenes from Peter Jackson's The Fellowship of the Ring. We had such a great long conversation with the Chads that we ended up splitting it into three parts. This is part two. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to go back and listen to that first as things will make a whole lot more sense if you do. And please be sure to come back for part three, because we end with a very special Grey Havens that I think you are all going to enjoy. Okay, on to the show. The Many Meetings. This scene cuts to a wide shot of Rivendell in all its glory. A white city nestled in the forest, surrounded by waterfalls and deciduous trees. Frodo emerges from his room and we get a slow motion reunion of the gleeful hobbits. Frodo turns to see Bilbo sitting nearby, peacefully working on his book. Frodo runs to greet him, and an equally overjoyed, but very aged, Bilbo embraces him. Bilbo! Hello, Frodo, my lad! Bilbo Bilbo. shows Frodo his book, and Frodo marvels at the work. There and back back again, A Hobbit's Tale by Bilbo Baggins. I meant to go back, wander the paths of Mirkwood, visit Lake Town. See the Lonely Mountain again. That age, it seems, has finally caught up with me. Frodo admits that he misses the Shire. Although he had always dreamed of going off with Bilbo in one of his adventures, his own turned out to be quite different. I'm not like you, Bilbo. My dear boy. We cut to Sam, who is packing to leave. Sam explains that he thought it was time to head home, seeing as how Frodo had gotten the ring to Rivendell, which was what Gandalf had asked. We did what Gandalf wanted, didn't we? We got the ring this far to Rivendell, and I thought, seeing as how you're on the mend, we'd be off soon. Off home. Frodo agrees, and with obvious foreshadowing, declares that the ring will be safe in Rivendell. I am ready to go home. I am ready to go home. Now this scene... Um, it's a beautiful scene and there is a lot that is different from the chapter in the books. And we already hinted at that. And I'm, you know, I'd like you guys to get into that a little further, but I think that it does accomplish the two primary purposes of the chapter, which is in my opinion, which is one to, to create um, an emotional and somewhat cathartic reunion between Bilbo and Frodo, which is, I think the emotional heart of the chapter, but then two also to convey that, Frodo is he's ready to go home. He's he's done. Um he misses the Shire. He didn't realize he missed the he would miss the Shire. You know, he starts out wanting kind of wanting to leave uh in a way. Um uh, but now he's he's happy to go home and he's ready to go home. Um I and I think a third element that is subtext and this may not be there, it may just be me being uh, reading into it too deeply, but I think both in the book especially in the book, but I think also in the movie that he does not believe he's going to get to go home yet. Um, If you look at um, Elijah Wood's face, the way that he delivers that last line, the ring will be safe in Rivendell. I'm ready to go home. He has a distinct look of melancholy on his face. I think that he wants to go home. He's hoping that he can, but he, a part of him, a part of his heart says that he will not be allowed to. Um, and I think that's, I think that's definitely in the book. I think it's also present in the, in the film. And I like the way that they accomplish that. Yeah. You can definitely see that he's struggling with something. He's wrestling with something. And I think Elijah Wood does such a good job 
in those small moments of conveying that there is something going on beneath the surface that we can't quite see. Um, And I love that. And I love the tender moment between he and Bilbo, you know, when he says, I'm not like you, Bilbo, I I want to go home. I I want to go home. And and Bilbo just says, my dear boy and touches his face. It's it's clear there's so much, so much affection there. And the reunion is really, really sweet. Passing, you know, passing him the book, all of that, I think is is really great and really touching, establishing that relationship. It, it's such a real moment, too. It's such a real response where he says, I'm not like you, Bilbo. You know, it'd be tempting to write a line where Bilbo says, oh, you're more courageous than you know, or or something like that. Um, but he doesn't do any, any of that. He just looks at him lovingly and says, my dear boy. And it, it, it gets me every time. It is a really... Uh, well-written scene and well-acted by Ian Holm, who I think just crushes every single scene in this movie. I I believe that what you just said there, this is way better than if they had done that. The saying, I'm not like you, oh, my dear boy. That's way better than what they, that's what movies usually do is like, oh, you're, you're, you're more, you're stronger than you think you are. That's what movies usually do. Right. Or American movies, at least like hyper sentimental and like, everything's glass half full, <laughs> you know, it's like a, such a real moment. Yeah. One of the things that uh, I think this scene does really well is this is really the first time you see, you see Imladris in all its glory. Like you get that wide shot of, of Elrond's house and you get um, the hobbits walking out and the, the reunion uh, with with all of them, essentially. I mean, the, the, like the, the big reunion, the one that, that, that Jackson and Walsh want, want to tug at your heartstrings is the, is the Frodo and, and Bilbo reunion. But, you know, I, I do get, uh, it is, it is nice to see all of the hobbits together again, to know that they're, to know that they're safe. Like if you hadn't have read the books, you, you weren't quite, you weren't quite sure up to this point. And so you do, you do get to see that. Um, I, one of the things that I, that I miss, um, from the books in this scene is the, the reunion I think with, with Frodo and Bilbo in the books is just as emotional. Um, Mm -hmm. You sort of get a big reveal in the, uh, because if you read through the chapter, Tolkien is alluding to Bilbo. Bilbo keeps coming up over and over and over again. Well, it's just like Bilbo said with this and, you know, and and, uh, man, I wish I could see Bilbo, you know, Frodo says, I I don't have it in front of me, but he, he says things like that. And then towards the end of the chapter, you get when they get when they go into the Hall of Fire and everybody is there and everybody's sort of having their uh, having their nightly merriment within the Hall of Fire. You do get that. You do get that reveal with with Bilbo. And so uh, Jackson and Walsh do do they they do fine with the reveal if they just choose a different setting. Um, I, I don't know why they chose this sort of outdoor setting. Um, maybe y'all have thought more about it than I have, but I, I don't know why they chose that instead of the Hall of Fire. I guess it just worked for what they were trying to do at the at the time. Um, I think, like I said earlier in the in the episode, I really would have liked them to work in the Tale of Arendelle somehow, some sort of homage to the Tale of Arendelle. I don't know how you would have done it, but I really would have liked to have seen that here. That would that would have been great. But I do like, just like you said, the, 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 the scene does evoke this great emotional response and it, it, it skips that sort of trap that comic book movies fall into where everybody can do, everybody can do everything and everybody pumps everybody up. Yeah. The, the only, um, reason for filming it that way that I can think of 
well, I'm sure there are plenty of reasons, but one reason would be it's logistically much easier to film a scene between two people than to film a scene between two people that occurs amidst a party, which is essentially what, what is happening in the books. Um, it's just logistically easier sound wise and all that. And, you know, if they want to put the focus on those two characters, they would just set them off. It makes sense to set them off in their own little room. Yeah, I get that. The, the thing that I, that I think we miss from it being done this way is, you know, whenever you're in the book and he woke up on the 24th and then this scene actually happens that night. Yeah. And then the next morning is when all the council stuff begins. It basically, you know, uh, Boromir arrives at dawn, and then they start pretty soon thereafter. But the only thing I really think you really miss, of course, I would love to hear the uh, Erendil was a Mariner poem, of course, but that's just not realistic, mm-hmm. and I understand that. But what I do believe that you miss that would have been beneficial to throw in there, even if they threw it into this scene, is the fact that uh, Glowen explains at the at the feast, remember Glowen explains how the Beornings have basically made that area safe again, and how now people from Dale and Erebor can pass through the Karak and go over the High Pass, because the High Pass is directly above Rivendell, so it makes it where travel back and forth. So basically Glowen's saying, it was easy for me to get here, and it's because of the descendants of Beorn. And he explains, you know, Dan is now fabulously rich and Bomber is too fat to walk. And, <laughs> you know, we haven't seen uh, Balin, Ori, and, and Owen since 2989. I think what the year was on that. And, uh, yeah, that's right, because they died in 2994. So they, they left in 2989. But here's what I wanted to say about that scene. And Chad High. I have not told him this yet, and I think this is interesting. It's going to be interesting for the listeners also because I saw something on this. I'll, I'll let Chad say what he's going to say first. Go ahead. Okay, I'll let uh, we'll, we'll we'll wait on that one for the big reveal there from Bornhold. Um, I was just I just wanted to comment a little bit uh, about another thing that you miss in the films, which you get later with Scary Bilbo when Bilbo changes his face and he scares everybody. That comes later in the films. That comes after right. uh, when when Frodo's packing, and I think that's sort of Jackson's after homage the after the council. And I think that is sort of Jackson's and Walsh's homage to this scene that you get in many meetings. This this part that we're talking about right here, where you have this soon after the reunification of Frodo and Bilbo. This is when Frodo has that vision of Bilbo, where he 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 sees him through the lens that. Um, uh, where Bilbo's shape has changed and, and Tolkien's kind of alluding to some foreshadowing there and Frodo's kind of looking introspectively about what the ring has done to Bilbo and you you don't get that here. You get that later, but it's done much, right. much differently. It's what Chad's saying, this has nothing to do with what I was about to say, but what Chad's saying there, the fact that they put that Gollum-looking Bilbo after the council, that really doesn't work very well because... It works better in the book for for Bilbo to have done that the night before because then during the council, Bilbo says, okay, fine, I'll take it to Mordor. And they're like, oh, no, you ain't. We saw you last <laughs> night. You ain't, you ain't touching it again. You know. So if, if with the whole 
because because with him doing that afterwards, what if during the council, if they had said, yeah, go ahead, Bilbo, you can take it to Mordor. And then you saw this whole, you know, the ah thing, like the one the memes are everywhere on it where right. he, he like kind of turns into a monster. But uh, yeah, I think that the. I think that just they they should have had that beforehand, even if they were going to leave out all this other scene. They could have just transplanted that before there, but it's it's what they I guess they they've got better reasons for doing it than what I can think of now. And I'm not a filmmaker for obvious reasons, but here's the other th- here's what I was going to bring up that I that I saw when I was looking at it for this episode that I've never seen before, and I thought it was interesting, and I almost had a reason. I, th- I thought they had a reason for this, but I paused the red book when Frodo opened the red book and I read every page. <laughs> and, so, and so I noticed something immediately when it shows the, the overall Eriador uh, map there. I thought about telling Chad this because it says on the Misty Mountains, they're labeled Hithiglin, which Hithiglin is the misspelling that was on the first edition map and it was fixed after the first edition map to Heath Aiglier. Or, or actually it's Heath Aiglin. It was H I T H A I G L H I T H A I G L I N. Heath Aiglin. Yeah, Christopher Tolkien made those corrections and for the maps for the second edition. That's a good catch, Chad. And it was supposed wow. to be Heath I, it was supposed to be Heath Iglier, which which instead of Heath Aglin, it was Heath Iglier, which is A E, because A E is pronounced I and A I is pronounced A. So they they had that. So I thought, wow, these people must have looked at the first edition map to draw this red book. If uh, anything, that's that's reassuring, isn't it? And also, like, amazing deep dive there and sleuth work. I <laughs> mad respect. <laughs> I well, would never after, have caught that. That's what I thought at first, but then after that, I noticed that Etten Moors, the N was missing. So I believe it was probably just a mistake. <laughs> 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 so, so then all the paragraphs that went on the on the page that's showing that map where it says Heath Eglin, the last paragraph, it's per- verbatim out of the book. And then all the other paragraphs before it are um, there. You can tell that someone had the Hobbit in front of them and was taking a paragraph at a time and paraphrasing the paragraph into a shorter version of the same paragraph. But it's paragraph by paragraph. And they the, just- thing, the thing about the maps, Chad, I, I, I think you're right on that. It's probably just a mistake because you can you, those first edition maps, you can only find those in the first edition volume. So I, I really doubt that the produ- the Jackson production team went and got, you know, they went and got first edition volumes and were working from those maps. So it's probably just a mistake. But that would be really cool. That'd be a really cool story if they were working from first edition volume. Yeah. Maps. So there's a couple more things. The runes, the runes where it says stand by the gray stone when the thrush knocks. Those runes are perfect. And believe me, I've stared at those runes a lot lately. So I know that those runes are perfect. <laughs> and, uh, and then inside the book also, it says in those, in those uh, paraphrases, it says that uh, remember when he first left his house? This is in The Hobbit, when Bilbo first left his house and he had forgotten his handkerchiefs and all that stuff. In the Red Book, we're supposed to be looking at the page where he wrote that part of the book. And it says that Gandalf brought him some handkerchiefs, or he brought him a pipe. He says, I forgot my handkerchiefs. Gandalf brought me a pipe and some tobacco. Mm -hmm. So I screenshotted that because 
we're now we have proof that even in the movies, pipe weed is tobacco. <laughs> it's not <laughs> marijuana. All there these people that think, all these people that think, yeah, in the book it was tobacco, but in the movie it's obviously marijuana. The, well, Jackson. The reason that people think that is because of Jackson. That's why people think yeah, that pipe weed is marijuana. Right. But the but if you're looking at Bilbo's book in the movie, they've got it open. Frodo's reading it. It says tobacco. And then also there's another thing in the uh, in the Hobbit movies. You remember they they just find the troll horde and go in there and they get Glamdring and Orchrist and Sting, right? And in the book they had a key. Remember Bilbo got that key from the trolls in the book. Well, when Frodo is reading the book in this scene, it actually says I, I got a key from the trolls. So there's a little problem with the Lord of the Rings movie with Frodo reading the book that Bilbo wrote says that Bilbo got the key, which is true to the book. But then when they made the Hobbit movie, they don't show a door. <laughs> they, don't, they just have him go into this hole. But the last thing I thought about with the book is at this point in time, the book is not that important. And that's kind of weird because if you think about to us in our real world, if we happened upon something real like this, you know, something that was this important, this would be kind of like seeing an original manuscript of a Bible or something. Hmm. You know, it's in this world, it hasn't become famous and priceless yet. But very, very soon, this is going to become the most important book that has ever been written. Because as it is right now, all it is is there and back again which is volume one, but the red book of Westmarch is actually four volumes. And then they add one more later. That's got the Bombadil stuff, but volume one is the red book of West volume book one of the red book of Westmarch is there and back again, volume two, three, and four is Bilbo interviewing everybody at Rivendell and translating all of their stories from the Silmarillion into Westron. So everyone else can read it. So when we're looking at the red book of Westmarch, that's, the Hobbit and the Silmarillion. So, and then later on, Frodo just adds to the end of the Hobbit. So volume one ends up being what we call the Hobbit and what we call the Lord of the Rings. Volume two, three, and four end up being what we call the Silmarillion. And so this book is going to be very, very important. But at that time, Frodo goes, oh, wow, you wrote your book. He opens it up and you, you don't really realize the magnitude of what you're looking at. Well, and, and in universe, the the book probably isn't that significant in Rivendell because Rivendell is the world's you know greatest library amongst great lore masters, and and Bilbo is translating it for his own purposes. But none of the elves probably care, right? Because they care, got, yeah, <laughs> they got better books, but also they remember all the lore in their heads. They have long memories, and and um, so it's kind of like. Uh, a curiosity or something that, that Bilbo does for his own benefit, but no one really, at least the elves don't appreciate what its importance could be to the world of middle earth later on. So it, right. it's incredibly important as a frame narrative device, but in universe, no but, one would, but even, so, even in, even in universe, after the ring is destroyed, now we've got all of this stuff that was taken from Elvish lore and and you've got it all written with the hand of the people who destroyed, who found and destroyed. I mean, it would be like finding, you know, one of the 
you know, some kind of religious characters, his own handwriting. You know, you you find the story. It'd be like finding the book of Matthew, and it's in Matthew's handwriting. You know, uh, be, right, you know what I'm right. saying? It's not typed. It's not rewritten. It's his, his own handwriting. Yeah. So at this point in time, it's not that important. But very soon, they're going to be world famous. It even says the, they're world famous. And now you're going to have a copy of the book when they wrote the things down when it first happened. And you remember the original book that he wrote, he lied in it. It's yep. not even the truth. Right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, settling the score on the tobacco issue number one (laughs) thanks for settling the score yeah well i guess the last thing i want to say before we move on to the next scene is you know we touched on this briefly in the very beginning how beautiful the sets are the set pieces are in in the all the rivendell set pieces and i love what they did i mean in general i love all the the set pieces and the architecture that that the jackson team came up with i think that rivendell is absolutely beautiful but the one thing that I miss is the interiors of, of Rivendell. And here's what I mean. When people talk about Rivendell and, oh, I, I wish I could live in Rivendell, I think what they're usually thinking about is, you know, roaring fires in, in, the, in the Hall of Fires and, uh, you know, endless stories and poems and books and good food. It is, you know, the last homely house. It is very cozy and it has all these wonderful activities that, that will feed the mind and the soul on the inside of the buildings. We never really see the inside of the buildings because, most of the settings for the many meetings uh, plot pieces are are changed around. So in the book, most of the many meetings is uh, a feast. It's basically a big feast where Frodo's sitting next to Glowin and they're chatting. Um, and Frodo's looking around and looking at the other people who are sitting around the table. And then they go into the hall and, and chat in the hall. And there's poetry and there's a roaring fire and, and lively conversation. I miss seeing the interior of Rivendell because to me, that is the most uniquely Elvish part of it, at least the way that it comes across to me in the books. Um, and I think that that omission is part of a larger, I don't want to say gripe, but something that I miss in the, in the Jackson films in general, which is that the elves don't seem particularly Elvish. And by that, I mean, they're not very otherworldly. You know, in Tolkien describes the elves as dreamlike. Um, you know, he uses a variety of, of ways to describe them, but I always come back to dreamlike. They're, they're a little otherworldly. They're not like men, but in the way they're visually depicted in the films, they're just kind of like beautiful men. Yeah. They have like long hair and, and certain types of clothes, but I don't get the otherworldliness of them. The only time where they do do that is when Arwen is introduced. They do that very well. She's, you know, she's uh, lit on the top. She's in different clothes because Frodo can kind of see her on the other side. Um, but other than that one instance in general, the elves are kind of, um, they just kind of read like, men to me and um so i kind of i i missed a little bit of that in these scenes which is where it it would occur otherwise i don't know i think i think i kind of disagree i think you really do get this like ethereal otherworldly quality from the elves and i think that's actually highlighted and driven home in the next few scenes it's clear that they have foresight and a deeper understanding of things and knowledge that is not that is not um, of the realm of men or hobbits, or it sets them apart a little bit. It distinguishes them. Yeah, the th- wisdom certainly does come across. I think you're right about that. Um, just to speak on what what Michael was saying, I, I think that you you are. I do agree with you that that to a certain extent that you don't get part of. I think what Tolkien's intention are 
as to how to portray elves in, in the legend aren't Tolkien describes elves as both terrible and wonderful at the same time and I think Jackson and Walsh do a good job of the wonderful part but they don't do necessarily a great job at the terrible part um, you don't you don't get that sense that uh, elves are elves are fairy and fairy is perilous and you don't at least to me I don't I don't get that I don't get that sense that Elrond is perilous um, and in, in, in Tolkien's writing I, I do much more I think what what do you get the inside of of Imladris? You get sort of you get that scene where you can see sort of the inside of of, of Elrond's library slash study when him and Gandalf were talking about how um, how men are weak. You get sort of you can see the inside there, but it's kind of brief. And then you get uh, there's that scene between Boromir and Aragorn where um, Boromir picks up the shards of Narsil and cuts himself on it, and you sort of get. But that's kind of at night, and you don't really see. You can't really see what's going, what the what the inside of the build, the you know, the inside of the, the the building that they're in. So I would agree with you there too. I would have liked to have seen more of the inside of Elrond's house. That's what I guess that's what I was trying to say earlier. When I I wish that um, we could have seen the Hall of Hall of Fire, even even if uh, they didn't introduce uh, Bilbo back into the scene that way. Right. Well, we do get a really clear picture of Elrond as a as a character in this next scene. So this next scene, the fate of the ring, the scene moves to Gandalf and Elrond speaking closely and watching the hobbits from a window above. Elrond observes that Frodo has shown extraordinary resilience to the ring's evil, but Gandalf laments that it is a burden he should never have had to bear, and that they can ask no more of Frodo. To Gandalf's dismay, Elrond tells Gandalf that the ring cannot stay in Rivendell. Gandalf, the enemy is moving. Sauron's forces are massing in the east. His eye is fixed on Rivendell. And Saruman, you tell me, has betrayed us. Our list of allies grows thin. Over a montage of Boromir, Legolas, and Gimli arriving in Rivendell, we hear Elrond emphasize that the elves are leaving Middle-earth, indicating that this is no longer their fight. This peril belongs to all Middle-earth. They must decide now how to end it. Gandalf states that it is in men that they must place their hope, to which Elrond replies, men are weak, and blames Isildur for the failure to destroy the ring. I was there the day strength of men failed. Isildur, hurry! Follow me. I led Isildur into the heart of Mount Doom, where the ring was forged, the one place it could be destroyed. Cast it into the fire! Men are scattered, divided, leaderless. Gandalf counters that there is one who could unite them. One who could reclaim the throne of Gondor. But Elrond states that he turned from that path long ago. He's chosen exile. Agent Smith. That's all I ever think <laughs> when I see this scene. And any scene with Hugo Weaving. No disrespect to Hugo Weaving, who I think is a tremendous actor. But The Matrix had come out not too long before this film. And he... <laughs> He did such a good job of creating the Agent Smith character that when I saw The Fellowship of the Ring, I was like, this, all I see is Agent Smith. And, you know, his delivery is a little Agent Smith-like. It's very, um, uh, I don't know, just the the diction. It's very direct, um, a little stronger than I would imagine Elrond speaking 
And I just, I, I just see Agent Smith. I can't get it out of my head even 20 years later. That's funny. Yeah, he's really harsh in this scene. Elrond is so he's he's uh, almost like bleak and pessimistic. You know, men are weak. He's like almost panicky. They change Elrond a lot panicky. in these films. A I lot. Think. They change him a lot, and I think this is a good scene in that it really establishes how dire this is. They're trying to emphasize. Listen, this is dire. Middle Earth is in trouble. What are we gonna do? How are we gonna fight back? You know, the elves are checked out. They're leaving. Uh, So it gives a lot of good background, and I think it was a really smart way to have these two powerhouse characters sort of arguing about it, or not arguing so much as heatedly discussing. Absolutely. And I I think, um, before we get to Chad, um, that I think that uh, another piece of information that it conveys that's really important at this point is to describe really quickly what the status of the various races are. You know, he says, uh, can't trust in dwarves. They, They care nothing for the troubles of others. The elves are leaving these shores. Um, Yandalf suggests, well, we have to turn to men. And so we, as the audience say, okay, like men, men are the only ones who are left. And Elrond just kind of despairs and is like, oh, they're no good. They have their problems, which again is setting up the conflict and arc for Aragorn. So again, this, this scene actually operates to elevate Aragorn's importance in the story. Um, and he is important in the, in the novel, but it it really, um, is, is setting up his importance as, as a character that needs to embrace his role as king. So what I was going to say on that scene is uh, you, you can kind of see in this scene that when they're looking down at them, when, when Elrond and Gandalf are looking down at them, you can kind of, you can kind of get the little hint in Elrond's speech that he's already leaning toward Frodo, which we don't really see that in the book, but I believe that this scene right here is, it's actually pretty well done for cutting out a lot of, for not cutting out, but like minimizing screen time for some important stuff that you need to say. The uh, the Sauron's betrayal, you can hear you Elrond says that to Gandalf. So that right there proves to you that that stuff that we saw that Frodo probably doesn't know about, Gandalf had to have told Elrond because Elrond says, "Oh, and you say Sauron's betrayed us," you know. Right. And so, and it seems like nobody else in the book knew that, and in in the book. During the council, um, Elrond actually says, Gandalf's about to tell y'all something about Saruman that y'all don't know about. And um, and then Gandalf tells El- Elrond about the half-human, half-orcs, the Urukai of, of Orthanc, which, is, which needs to be said because everyone thinks of orcs as not being able to come out in the, in the light. So one major advantage that non-orcs have is being able to move in the light and Gandalf says hey that's not an advantage anymore because Saruman has figured out a way to breed orcs and humans which is a treebeard in the book says that's a black evil that you're breeding humans and orcs together and then that's when Elrond starts his little thing about we can't the elves here can't conceal this evil and and we can't fight both Mordor and Isengard, which that kind of hints at the two towers thing, which Tolkien was intentionally ambiguous about on which two towers he meant. Right. Although, although on the book cover he actually drew Kirith Ungal and and uh, Orthanc, where basically he's saying these are the two towers, even though he was letting people make their own judgment on it. But 
And I like the way when he is giving this little speech here to Gandalf, it shows everyone showing up. I like the way as he's saying, who are we going to trust in? The elves are leaving. And you see Legolas and all the yeah. all the people from Mirkwood showing up. I think it's dwarves. They care nothing. And then you see the dwarves showing up. And and um, I like the way it they he picks those the way they film that he picks those words to say as you see people arriving so that actually cuts down on a whole lot of story screen time also it's a, it's i think it's a really well done use of time for this part uh so just uh real quick on the two towers thing um that two towers actually wasn't uh, tolkien's idea to call it two towers uh, uh, the listeners may or may not know that Tolkien wanted the Lord of the Rings published as one volume and uh, George Allen, when the publisher at the time, paper was really expensive in the 1950s and they couldn't afford to publish it as one volume. So that's why it came out in three different volumes and the two towers. Uh, well, all, all of the, the titles actually for uh, the three volumes were um, Rainer, Rainer Unwin's idea. Um, and there's, if there's a, there's a lot of correspondence between Tolkien and Rainer Unwin kind of working out, the uh, the three titles for the volumes and two towers was Rainer Unwin's idea and so Tolkien went back and sort of retconned some of these drawings and so uh, it's uh, a lot of a lot of us people who are into Tolkien publishing were were not quite sure if Tolkien really ever decided what the two towers were um, and right. it, you know some of us think he left it ambiguous and some people think that you know he he never really decided. Well, remember he on the on the drawing, you've got the Orthanc Tower there, and then you've got the one with the moon on it, which shows yeah. that that's Ithil, right? Right. In in terms of the scene, I, I one of the things that I never really liked about this scene uh, I, is that Elrond is giving in to sort of, he's he's despairing and yeah. he's he's sort of giving into despair, like like Gandalf's kind of having to talk him off the ledge a little bit. And I didn't really like how the, that they did that with the Elrond character, because in in the books, Elrond never gives into despair. And Elrond tells you whenever he's talking about his backstory, Elrond's seen some stuff. He's seen many defeats and many fruitless victories. He says that. And but but one of the things that one of the themes that Elrond keeps bringing back to the council is that we cannot give into despair. We have to do something about this, but we can't just sort of hide away and give in and, and give into this. And I, I didn't like how they they made the Elrond character in the films uh, sort of he's sort of in like this panic mode, and I, I never really liked that. But other than that, the scene is really well done. But I, I just didn't really like the tone that they struck with the Elrond character here. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and um, they really lean into that with respect to his plotline with Arwen, because the Aragorn and Arwen plotlines are given a lot of life in these movies, whereas in the books they're kind of relegated to the appendices. They're really important, so I'm glad they included them. But as a part of that transformation, they made Elrond's role in the Aragorn and Arwen uh, plotline kind of problematic in that he's like trying to manipulate Arwen. I mean, it makes it appear very manipulative the way he's trying to manipulate Arwen into going with him, you know, across the, across the sea to Valinor. He doesn't want her to stay, does not want her to marry Aragorn. Um, so it's very, it's a bit of a change. Um, but the thing that I wanted to, to get into that we didn't really mention in the, the summary of the scene, um, when Elrond is talking about, Hey, I was, uh, uh, men, we can't put our trust in men. 
he recounts a memory, an experience. 3,000 years ago, he was there when Isildur cut the ring from Sauron's hand and failed to throw the ring into the fire. And it's a really cool flashback scene, really, really cool flashback scene. But, and I want to throw it to one of you guys, there are some differences. And to sort of, uh, as, as a lens through which to analyze these differences, there are a lot of people who ask on the internet, uh, you know, this little Quora or Reddit, why didn't Elrond just push Isildur into the fire? And uh, I, I'll let uh, both of you raising your hands here. So Chad Bornholt was first. There's funny answers to this. So Chad Bornholt. Okay. I was waiting to get to this. This is the most annoying thing in the entire Jackson trilogy. <laughs> So when 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 Elrond says I was there three thousand years ago, really it was three thousand nineteen years ago, and Elrond at this point in time is six thousand five hundred seventeen years old. So he was already three thousand years old when this happened. Math people, math. <laughs> and, and so when it goes to that scene where it shows Elrond, you know, it shows Isildur cut the ring off of Sauron's dead hand mm-hmm. in the movie, he's you know, getting ready to reach for him. You know, he's, he's doing the classic bond villain mistake, you know, whereas in the, in the books he was prone. Sauron was prone and they cut the, cut the ring off his hand. And then in the movie he says, follow me. And I, and he says, I led Isildur into the heart of Mount Doom, which is not accurate. And the fact that he says that he did, that's what causes the big problem. And it seems like a plot hole. But it's a plot hole. It's a Jackson plot hole. It is not a Tolkien plot hole. Tolkien said in 1951, in letter number 131 to Norton Wallman, Tolkien said, It is beyond the strength of any will, even Sauron's, to injure, cast away, or neglect the ring. Sauron himself cannot intentionally hurt the ring. Elrond, at the time, in 3441, in 2nd Age 3441, Elrond and them, they didn't know just how powerful this ring was going to right, be. Right, So let's just say that what you see in the movie actually is what happened. It's not, but let's just say that it is what happened. So Elrond, it would have been disastrous, by the way. So Elrond leads Isildur up there, and he says, throw it in the fire. Isildur cannot do it. No one can do it. No one. No one can do it. No one. And so he says, throw it in the fire. Isildur says no. And then everybody on the internet says, oh, Isildur is a bad guy. He's weak, whatever. You know, same thing they say about Frodo. He can't do it. It's impossible. And so then when people are trying to come up with an excuse as to why he didn't do it, they come up with these really weak answers such as, oh, well, you wouldn't want to just kick him in because then you'd have a, a war between elves and men. Okay, let's take that scenario. Let's say that he did know. That is a risk you have to take. If you're going to allow, okay, we, we're going to cause a rift between humans and elves. Who knows how long that's going to last? Humans don't live that long anyway, but we will be destroying evil forever if we do this. We've got to kill somebody that we shouldn't be killing to do it. That's a risk that you know in the real world. You know our government would do that. It's no, it's no question they would do it. But for argument's sake, knowing that he didn't know, 
there's another thing in, in letter 191 it, Tolkien says it is possible for the good even the saintly to be subjected to a power of evil which is too great for them to overcome in themselves if Elrond said Isildur throw it in and Isildur says no I'm keeping it as a wear guild and Elrond goes fine I'm kicking you in he would not do it and he wouldn't know that he wasn't doing it if you take it from that spec from that uh vantage point Elrond would come toward Isildur thinking I'm about to kick him in or I'm going to tackle him in and kill both of us or or whatever it doesn't matter what happened when he got to him he would not harm the ring. He wouldn't kick him in. He wouldn't fight him. He wouldn't like try, try to throw it in himself. Nothing. The thing that would end up happening is he would get there with all intentions of kicking Isildur in. And when he got to him, before he even knew what was going on, he would be fighting Isildur for the ring. And the last thing either one of them would allow to happen is for the ring to go in the fire. It would not happen. No one can hurt it. Tolkien said so himself. And so then whenever I'm trying to explain that to, to people, they say, well, Frodo, some people think Frodo did destroy it. No, he didn't. Eru destroyed it. Tolkien said in, I believe it was 182, I can't remember if it was 182, but Tolkien said the other power then took over. He said because Bilbo and Frodo had demonstrated pity on someone who didn't deserve pity, and they demonstrated that pity without knowledge of the repercussions that would happen because of the pity, Tolkien, uh, uh, Frodo got the ring further than anyone else could have gotten it, and that's all. He couldn't do anything else because it's impossible. Nobody could. And then Tolkien says, then the other power then took over. The writer of the story, and other powers in caps, the writer of the story, that's in caps too. And then it says, that one person who is never absent and never named. Tolkien said, because of what Frodo and Bilbo did out of pity for Gollum. And then Gollum is put in a position, Gollum deserved to die both from a punishment standpoint and from the fact that he was a human being, that he's a hobbit, which is a subset of human beings, that he deserved to die because he had been he had, he had been um, taken that had been taken away from him. His life was supposed to have ended 400 he was 478 I think when he lost the ring. So his life was supposed to have ended long ago and because of that ring he was denied the gift of death given to him by Eru. So he gets in the Frodo gets the ring into position. Gollum bites his finger off and then Eru makes Gollum slip and fall into the fire and it satisfies everything, and then in the paper, in the books and everything, it goes down that Frodo did it. No one ever finds out what actually happened, but Frodo mentions it whenever he's talking about how he's 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 wounded. He's wounded emotionally also because all he all he can think about is his injuries and the fact that he failed. It's he is the one who is hardest on himself. He's like I couldn't do it, and Gandalf saying. Nobody could do it. Don't worry about it. Nobody could do it. But it, that's not good enough. So that's the main – like all these yeet Asildur things that you see on the internet, and every time I'm like – and I don't have enough 
I don't have enough time to type all of this to someone, but I want to say, I hate to be the person that says, read the books, but I want everybody to know, you know, like you're missing a grand part of the story. Basically, this, this thing is un, it's indestructible, both from a physical standpoint and a mental standpoint. A mortal cannot destroy this. And he even said that if anyone tried to um, try to don the ring and, and you know go up against Sauron like what Sauron thought Aragorn was doing at, at the Morannon, that no one would be able to withstand Sauron except for maybe Gandalf. He says maybe Gandalf could do it, and that's only because he's slightly powerful because he has Sauron's ring. Anyways, that's my whole that's my whole uh, thing about the that. Thing. So if they hadn't had him go to because in the book they were on the slopes, they were kind of far away. They'd have had to do that big trip up the up the mountain to do it. And so he says Elrond says that only Círdan and myself were there, and no one else marked what he did. He kept it. And he didn't lead him there at all. And if he had, it would have been much, much worse. Because then you never know if he would have thought, well, I'll, I'll get rid of it whether you want me to or not. Then it wouldn't have happened. Then they would have had Elrond with it, and he'd have turned evil. You know, the folks who really complain and don't, if you haven't read the books, then you don't have the context and you can't point out those plot holes because you don't have the full context, as you said. Um, Chad, that the ring can't be destroyed by any any one person. That's really something that you would probably only get from reading the books, even though I think they try to underscore that in the films, in the Council of Elrond. Um, you, it, It's really sort of beyond the description of what they can achieve in the film, I think. You, you, get, you get a whole lot of that. You know, Sauron was stupid. He should have guarded the place. Because, you know, the only reason he was the only reason they were able to get there is because he sent everybody out to the Morenon to try to kill Aragorn and all those guys. But uh, but really, it, when you think of it from that standpoint, Sauron should not have worried about that because the best thing that could possibly happen is for someone to come in there thinking they're going to destroy it. They can't. They can't do it. So the real mistake is Sauron not thinking that Eru would step in, which who would, who would ever think that, you know? And even if you haven't read the books and don't have that, that context, I think even in the films, uh, a secondary reason, even if you don't know or fully understand that it is the nature of the ring to sort of defend itself from destruction because it it, it gets such a hold over people. even, Even if you don't know that it is critical to sort of the, philosophy of the lord of the rings that to achieve a good end through evil means is kind of an anathema it's totally antithetical to to tolkien's um philosophy i think and so if elrond had achieved a good end i.e destroying the ring by murdering isildur that would have had a, a, a negative ripple effect throughout the following years and ages um that would not have been a good act uh, and so i think I could just, you know, you could even just explain it to people that way. Just say, that, you know, why wouldn't he destroy the ring that way? It's obviously a good end. Well, ends don't justify the means in terms of the philosophy of the the Tolkien's universe and the Legendarium. Yeah, this this is one of the, this is actually one of the things that I think the Jackson films gets really, really wrong. And I, I think that we are like 
Bornhold said, we're dealing with it online all the time with, 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 uh, the, the most, I guess the most famous one, the one that I see all the time is, uh, it's like some sort of animated, uh, picture of Elrond kicking Isildur into, into the mountain of fire. And then it's, it plays and it's like the end credits or whatever. That's the worst one that I see all the time. But so there, it's, but it's not just that scene. The re it's the, these Jackson and Fran Walsh don't understand this concept that uh, uh, no one could destroy the ring. They, they don't get that. And it's not just that scene. It's, it's like, for example, at the council of Elrond that I'm, that uh, I'm sure that you, you're all familiar with when, Gimli takes his axe and he tries to destroy the ring and the ring destroys the axe, right? Uh, Elrond's, the line that Elrond says is, the ring cannot be destroyed, Gimli's son of Glowing, by any craft that we here possess. It's not, so the motivation to destroy the ring is there. They just don't have the, the, the they don't have the, the technology to do it. If you think about that, that's not what Tolkien would have intended, right? They they can destroy it. They just don't have the technology. But that's not the that's not the tone that that is in the books, right? The 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 concept of destroying the ring isn't even seriously discussed at the Council of Elrond. It's not even really brought up. Uh, what is really focused on at the Council is well, where are we gonna where are we gonna take it? That's really what the characters argue over is where are we going to take it? Should we throw it in the ocean? Should we bury it in the earth? Should we give it to Bombadil? Um, it's not about who's going right. to destroy it or can we destroy it. And when you're getting the history of the ring, you're getting the history of Isildur finding the ring. There's nothing about there's nothing about Elrond saying, "Well, we tried to destroy it and we couldn't." There's nothing in the books about that. Jackson makes all that all this up, right, for for cinematic effect. You you get the 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 great reading of Isildur's great, great archaic language that Tolkien writes out for him where he talks about taking the ring as were guild and and um but that's really it. That's really all we get. We get that Isildur took the ring, he claimed it for his own, he claimed it as were guild, and and that was that was it. And the 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 concept of this whole we're gonna destroy it, we tried to destroy it and we we couldn't, so now we have to fix this mistake. That's all invented by by Peter Jackson and Frank Walsh. So this next scene is titled The Sword That Was Broken. Night falls and a close-up shot of Aragorn brings us into a scene inside of one of Rivendell's great halls where Boromir surveys a portrait of Sauron and Isildur. He turns to find Aragorn reading. Aragorn introduces himself only as a friend of Gandalf. Boromir notices the shards of Narsil. Shards of Narsil? He irreverently picks it up but clumsily handles its sharp end, cutting himself. Blade cut the ring. He then feels Aragorn watching him and, embarrassed, drops the sword and walks away. Aragorn carefully puts it back. Enter Arwen, who puts words to Aragorn's thoughts. She tells him not to fear the past. You are a Sildor's heir, not a Sildor himself. You are not bound to his fate. But Aragorn fears that the same blood flows same in his veins, the same weakness. Arwen foretells that he will face the same evil, but he will defeat it. We then see Aragorn and Arwen in a garden, where Arwen gives the Evenstar jewel to Aragorn, promising to forsake her immortal life in order to be with him. 
Man, I love this scene. Such a good scene. Particularly, um, well, all of it. But <laughs> I really love when, in the extended version, you see Boromir, he doesn't know who Aragorn is. And Aragorn does not introduce himself. Like, he's he's still being coy about it. You know, he's still rejecting his identity in the movies. We've established in the books this is not the case. Um, but I really like in the, I really like this change that he is sort of a tortured hero. I think it humanizes him a lot in the movies. Um, and the second part of this that I really like is the Arwen Aragorn scene. I think it's a really romantic scene. The language is really beautiful. The even star, I think, was smart, a smart choice of the filmmakers to sort of represent more abstract concepts that the book has. And it's just a really beautiful uh, exchange and scene in general. Yeah, I would I would agree with most of that. Um, I, I do think that one of the things that the Jackson films do just in general very well is establish the relationship between Aragorn and Arwen and make you really care about their relationship. Um I wish that it seems like this, that I think that they really come close to sort of portraying to the audience just how important Aragorn and Arwen's relationship is. Um, I wish that you, I wish that there was some way to, to get the history behind um, Aragorn and Arwen's relationship with the, the elf human relationships that have come before. I don't, I don't know how you would do that within the, the, uh, the cinematic sort of, storytelling arc but i wish that there was a way that they could have done that but i think that it seems like this that that approach uh giving something like that to the audience the, you know even if you haven't read the the like even if even if you had the haven't read the quintus Silmarillion or you haven't you're not familiar with the stories of the first age you sort of get the sense that this relationship is important even if you don't know uh the history behind it you don't know about baron and luthien but you you get the you you still know that this relationship has meaning and it, it's got it's got me it's connected to the to the peoples of middle earth in some way so i think i agree with you jen I, I think that scenes like this really do give the audience that uh w- without you know with leaving leaving all the history aside um I, as i've said i think i've said this already um i i don't like the unsureness of aragorn i, I know that some like the tortured hero kind of vibe the the sort of like He's growing as a character all the way through. I don't like that because it's not it's not the Aragorn that I grew up with in in the books, and so it's not it, it for me it doesn't work. Um, and it's 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 it feels unnecessary to me that that Aragorn is is really unsure of himself. And uh, but the scene is very beautifully done, and just in general, I mean, Bornholt likes it liked it well enough to put the painting on his wall at, at, at home, you know. So there 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 are. Things about the scene that are really well done. I love the lineage with Narsal. I love the the backstory that you get with the with the blade that was broken within the scene. It's uh, it's done very well. The fact that it's at night, I think that's intentional. Um, and I, I like pretty much everything about this scene, except for except for those little things. And I think it's 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 just nitpicking on my part. Well, one note about you commented that. Uh we don't get any of the Baron and Luthien story. So we don't understand the significance of the, the human and elvish relationship history. There is actually in the extended edition, they do introduce a scene um, when Strider is leading the hobbits um, uh, out of Bree and they're camping. 
and Aragorn is singing the lay of Luthien to himself and Frodo wakes up and says, who are you singing about? And, and Aragorn explains, tells him about that relationship and the end of that story, which is a great ending. And it foreshadows a lot. Frodo asks what happened to her speaking about Luthien and Aragorn answers, she died. And that scene is cut in the theatrical, but it remains in the extended and it sets up the Aragorn Arwen relationship pretty nicely. It does give us, give us a glimpse into that, that backstory. Um, gives us some of that significance and also it's kind of ominous it foreshadows the the stakes for arwen uh, and for both of them uh, and when we're first seeing that scene this is actually a it's a very tolkieny type of scene that they introduced here um we don't as the audience unless you've read the books you don't understand the significance of this random poem why am i hearing this because we haven't heard about arwen yet we haven't been introduced to that character it's totally out of context and has no meaning to us until later and then it comes together which is um, kind of consistent to the way with the way Tolkien introduced information in in his writing style. So I, I really liked the way that they set that up in the movie. And uh, I do have I do have a theory about um, the way that they change Aragorn's character. But before we leave this topic, uh, Chad Bornhold. So this entire scene, like what like what uh, Chad High said, I had I commissioned a recreation of that painting first. First, I checked to see if you could buy it because I would. You know, I, I would pay them for that if I could, but they didn't have one. So I commissioned an artist, and she recreated that painting for me. You, you really can't tell that it's not the painting from the from in there. It's, and uh, it's five feet wide and four feet tall, and it's, it's in my computer room, my study at my house. And uh, then that, that statue of Gil Ryan, which is, which is uh, there, it's Aragorn's mom that's that Narsil is on, which Narsil is supposed to be two pieces, not six, but Narsil is there and, and she, she's, uh, she's got it. Well, later on in the movie, you remember Aragorn says some of uh, Gil Ryan's lines when he says, I keep none for myself. I give hope to men. So the, this scene, I really like, I really like this scene a whole lot as far as the way they did it. I didn't try to figure out what the book says. You know, it's got some Tenguar on the front. I didn't try to figure that out. Didn't have time, but, but, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but, but I was in the same way that I was talking earlier about the book and the same way that I was talking about, they're seeing the red book. And it's, it's like seeing a piece of history, almost like a piece of myth- mythological history. It's, you know, it, when they saw the red book and, and right now it's not that important, but in the very, in the future, it's going to be the most important book ever. Well, right now, Boromir is seeing something that is, it's a legendary because he's, that's, that would be like seeing, uh, you know, the cross or something. It's, it's, you're looking upon something that, you know, for sure, this exact thing that I'm touching killed what we would call satan you know you're it like oh my god i can't believe that i'm looking at this thing in person it's maybe not satan maybe melkor is is the christian satan and and sauron is the christian beelzebub (laughs) so but it's basically the same idea be careful with that allegory there chad (laughs) that's true that's true that's true but Basically, if we're, if we're going to have to compare them to someone, <laughs> that's the way it had to compare us to. But then when I, when I 
don't like about that is the fact that Boromir would not let it fall. If, you know, he's looking at it and it would be awe-inspiring to see it. And he would not let that thing fall. He would he would be very, very... Matter of fact, I wouldn't even touch it. If I saw something that was that important to the history of mankind, I wouldn't touch it. But then when Arwen shows up and does that scene, I really like that scene. I like that scene a lot better than Arwen's other scenes because... At least this one is not robbing someone else of another scene, like the Glorfindel scene. I don't, I don't like the Ford, the Ford of Bruin thing where Arwen did that. This scene right here, and the fact that it talks about the whole. Uh, remember when we met? You had fewer cares, I think, is what she said, than than we had then, or something like that. And uh, so basically, they met in they met in Third Age twenty nine fifty one. Aragorn was 20 and had just found out who he really was. She was 2,710 then, and right now it's 3018. So now he's 87 and she's 2,777. It's not that much older for her, but it's 67 more years for him. So he's he's basically, even though he's going to live to be 210. So, but basically the whole Luthien's words thing and that the Even Star pendant that you see, the Even Star is like signifying that she is the evening star of her people. She is the end of the elves. And so it's really obvious to book readers. And so I think that the scene kind of, the, the fact that you saw the scene with the deer when he when he's singing the Lay of, Lu, Lay of Lathian, he says Lay of Luthien, I think, but it's the Lay of Lathian, which is about Luthien. It's the release from bondage. And he's, he, he simplifies what happened in the only way a movie can, and that is she died. You know, he, did, he left out, he left out, um, you know, she put Melkor to sleep, <laughs> you know, so that kind of stuff. But, but uh, he does simplify that. But the fact that you see, okay, you know that that's what happened to her. And even as, as a moviegoer that doesn't know the books that well, you gather just by the way he delivers that line in the dark with the deer when he's talking about Luthien, the way he delivers that, it already, it already automatically puts it in your mind, okay, he must be thinking about th this later on. And then when you see Arwen, you realize that that is what he's talking about. And when she says, I choose a mortal life, it instantly takes you back to that scene where he said she died because the – the whole, you know, Han Solo, Princess Leia, I love you, I know. It it cannot be said any better than this. If you if you want to prove that you love someone, you and, and the one thing that's special about you is that you will never ever die. And if Arwen or Luthien wanted to prove to someone who dies, who is destined to die, there's there's no way that anyone could possibly uh, prove that they love somebody more than saying, I'm going to die rather than be without you. I'll, I can be without you for 100,000 years, or I can live with you for 60 and then, and then die and never come back. If Arwen says, I love you, Aragorn has to say, I know. I know you do.
So I, th I think, yeah, I, I, I do. I agree with both what, what y'all are saying about the, the callback to um, what Aragorn is saying in, in the extended edition of the films. I guess I wanted to just clarify what I, what I think. I think it's easier for us to make that connection because we have read the books. But I, I think that um, what the scene does well is it gives you it. it, it the the relationship between Aragorn and Arwen is is portrayed to you as important to the free peoples of middle earth through the way that the scene is portrayed in conjunction with the what aragorn has told the hobbits on weathertop beforehand but what i don't think that you get if you haven't read the books is you don't understand that how just how rare these relationships are and you do you, there is you know you you can make the leap that Luthien did the same thing that Arwen did but you don't know if you haven't read the Silmarillion it's but but I think it's easy for us to make that connection but it's not quite as easy for someone who hasn't read the books and has just seen the films that's a fair that's a fair point so I wanted to to turn a little bit to what you said Chad High about how they changed Aragorn's arc and this has been remarked upon by a lot of people and is a significant change that in the in the films they really play up his inner conflict he doesn't trust himself he doesn't believe in himself yet he hasn't embraced his role as the heir to lendil you know the the rightful king of gondor he has not embraced that identity and elrond makes it explicit in the the preceding scene he says he has turned from that path long ago you know he he's basically rejected his what should be his fate so that becomes an, an important arc for aragorn in the films whereas in the books he's totally embraced that uh, at the council of elrond he identifies himself to Boromir as the, the rightful heir of Gondor. Um, whereas in the movies, it's Legolas who has to stand up and tell Boromir and, and Aragorn, in fact, tells him, hey, all right, Legolas, just sit down, sit down, you know, chill out. <laughs> uh, we don't need to talk about that. Uh, that's not really me. Um, so they have definitely changed that. But I think that in a way, there's a way to look at it where I think it is consistent. It, it is a change, but it is somewhat consistent with an arc that Aragorn does go through in the books, which is, he does have to grow in order to ascend to the kingship. He is not king at the start of the 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 story, and although he is the 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 heir by blood, um, it's, it is a part of his journey to become the man he needs to be to ascend to the kingship. I mean, even at the return of the king, um, he doesn't enter until he's invited in by the steward. Right? That wouldn't happen at the beginning if he just walked to to Gondor and and declared himself he wouldn't be invited in to become king. He has to go through this journey. So there is a journey that he has to go through in the novels, in the novel to become king, to ascend to that kingship. And on the way, his inner conflict does appear but in a different form. He is leading the the fellowship, the the nine walkers after Gandalf leads. And and there are a number of instances where he laments his inability to lead them as effectively as Gandalf. And, you know, he doubts his decision making. He's basically kind of losing his mojo or he's doubting his mojo a little bit. And so there is a bit of an arc for him. He has to go through that battle. He has to make these tough calls, not trusting himself. He's not at the level of Gandalf. But by the end of the, of the novel, he has gone through that sort of transformative process and he becomes king. In the, in the films, they, they do change the form that that inner conflict takes. Whereas it's a much more modernist take where we don't want our heroes to, and our kings and our leaders to identify themselves as leaders. We want them to be reluctant leaders. That's that's sort of a, a moral that that is much more modern. Jackson sort of tweaks 
an inner conflict that I think is present, an arc that is present, but he changes it. Now Aragorn actually, not only does he have to go through something to become king, he actually doubts that he even wants to be king in the beginning. And he wraps that all in uh, to the relationship with Arwen and puts all those ties, all those things together. Um, so it is a change, but it doesn't offend me as much as it offends some people because I think it's a more modern way of depicting an arc that is subtly occurring in the novel. Yeah, my, I, th- I think I think the reason that it doesn't offend you is the reason that it does offend me. I think <laughs> I, th- I I think that it's yeah, it's it's just for me, it's just it's too obvious in the films for me. Like, and it's it's all it's in your face all of the time, and it's just not something that I I think I appreciate because you're right in the in the in the novels, Aragorn does doubt himself, and he does have he does have scenes where he does. Uh, question his own decision making but he kind of loses his mojo temporarily in the books and he gets it right back you know something happens and he does the he he overcomes this next situation and he he has it right back in in the films it it seems like a lot of it is is it's comes from within himself and it's sort of like the self-doubt that is uh he is he's having to get this reassurance from from different characters along the way, and it's just not. It's I I I, I definitely uh, understand what you're saying, and I, I've never really quite thought about it that way about how it's a modern take on how, and it's sort of a, a really American, quintessentially American. It's made you you can tell that it's made for an American audience, and we right. do like leaders that are reluctant. I mean, look at you know all the way back to George Washington. Uh, so it's that's definitely something that I'd never thought about before. Um, I, I just it's it it almost feels like it we're being pandered to a little bit and we're not uh, you know it's it's it, we're not uh, uh he doesn't it almost feels like as i'm talking it out right now it almost feels like aragorn doesn't really have a whole lot of confidence and then at the end boom he's got all the confidence like he has no confidence no confidence and then all he's got it all at once that the pandering is exactly what i was gonna say i was waiting on you to finish and then you kind of took it away from me but the the uh, in the book Aragorn's um, lack of confidence in the book, it's not his lack of confidence in being a leader at the end. It's not his lack of confidence in becoming and being a king and thinking that he will do right once this has been accomplished. In the book, he is more worried about the fact that, you know, um, I am being guided by someone who is pretty much all-knowing, and now he's gone. And so Aragorn's real problem with himself in the books is I hope, I just hope to Eru that I'm making the correct decisions when I don't consult with someone else. Whereas in the movie, it's, it's like the whole, you know, the pandering thing is a problem to me when every movie, every story, every TV show, everything in order. It's like movie makers, filmmakers, Hollywood, the people, they believe that the only people that we are going to accept as being a ruler, you know, like a monarch is someone who didn't want to be one anyway. It's like, it's like, especially the land of the free where everybody believes that, oh, you know, I'm an American. I can't be ruled. Well, 
it's it wasn't like that for Tolkien. Tolkien thought that monarchy monarchy was good. He didn't think of it that way. He thought that there is a there is a nobility in a monarch, and you can see it in the in the line of descent. And I thought that was a little weird that that Elrond himself said in the movie the 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 line of kings is broken when he knows he's not. He raised Aragorn, right? So it's like kind of weird that he said that. And then they use the excuse that he turned from that path long ago. But the in the book, it doesn't look to me like Aragorn doesn't want to be king. It looks to me like he was really counting on having a, a higher authority help him through this. And when he has to make the decision alone, he's worried, sick, that what he's doing is going to derail the entire process of what's what the intention was and uh so but but what i was saying earlier i thought about this when y'all were talking after i shut up which i tend to not do very often but uh, i tend to not shut up the if anyone is a movie only person and you want to risk at your own peril being hooked by these books and not being able to put them down ever again just look online or something and find the written scene. It's not in the movie. Find Aragorn's deathbed scene when Arwen is having to tell him bye. Oh, it's, heartbreaking. It's, it's, it's inevitable that you're hooked for good for that. It, and it's only topped by the Luthien story because Arwen is basically like a mini Luthien thing. But the, but Aragorn's dying and, you know, with Arwen you know, knowing that it's for the best, and yet, you know, she can't help herself. She pleads for him not to go. It's it's a it's sad, 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 and the sadness is the beauty of Tolkien's works. It even says that in the Ainu Lindale. the sadness is what makes it beautiful. He didn't it's, shy away from tragedy. You know, he was not exactly. afraid of, of tragedy and heartbreak and the suffering that accompanies life. And that's something I love and appreciate as well in the books, most especially. Well, that will do it for this week. Be sure to come back next time to hear the conclusion of our discussion with the Chads, where we finally get to the Council of Elrond. And then we're going to top it all off with a very special Grey Havens. I promise you will not want to miss it. So uh, even if you want to skip the regular episode, just come back and listen to the Grey Havens. If you're enjoying this podcast, please do remember to share us with your friends. Leave us a review. Rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And we would love to hear from you. So please do get in touch on social media or by email to watchpartylotr at gmail.com. Until next week. May the hair on your toes never fall out. Thank you.